0: Redemption Sale family and friends out there, I'm glad that you're joining us today for what is going to be the 11th message in our series over the book of Ephesians. Um, If you have watched or heard any of these messages pre COVID or now, you know that this is uh, really one of my favorite books of the Bible. I I love it, it's been transformative in my life. So, my hope and prayer is that it would be transformative in yours as well. So we're going to kind of jump right into it. We are in the second half of uh, the book right now, which means that in this section, uh, Paul is going to focus on the theme of teaching believers what it looks like to live and walk out our identity in Christ. Uh, Ephesians has done a lot of work to show that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are redeemed, if you are saved... Uh, that you've been given a brand new identity. It's one that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, you didn't merit it, Uh, one that really was quite foreign to, to you. Uh, Essentially, you were called to follow Christ and you accepted that invitation before you even knew the implications of what all that meant at the time. So Paul, in the back half of the book, is going to kind of backfill and teach followers of Christ how to do that. They're going to teach us how to live, how to, to walk as redeemed, loved, enlightened, sealed family members of God, ones that have an eternal inheritance that won't fade and won't be taken away from us. Paul's going to go, this is what it looks like to live in light of that, to embody and grow and flourish in the kingdom of God together with your days in the new identity that you have been given. Now, knowing that Christians, they haven't earned anything right? They didn't righteously live to get their salvation. They didn't earn favor or standing before God, but instead uh, they received their identity by the payment or the merit of another, of of Jesus. This reality of the gospel, it's a beautiful one that Jesus's merit, his work, his righteousness earned and paid for our salvation. That is a beautiful reality, but also here uh, we have to understand it's a mind-bendingly confusing, one at times. Because it almost starts this cycle of of kind of the chicken and the egg in our lives where we, we kind of progressively ask over and over, okay, well, what comes first? Orthodoxy or orthopraxy? Those are fancy words, but they're really not that complicated. Orthodoxy is just a way to say right beliefs or doctrine. Uh, you believe the right thing if you are orthodox. Orthopraxy, on the other hand, that is right behavior or right conduct. You live the right way. You do the right thing. So our hearts, in light of grace, tend to kind of go into this back and forth tug of war where we become a little bit confused asking over and over okay what came first orthodoxy or orthopraxy and also after you are saved what is most important what is the weightier of of matters what's in se- essential for us to keep in mind orthodoxy or orthopraxy what do we need to pay attention to what we believe or what we do what's the most important thing Well, Paul has already shown us that orthopraxy, right behavior, it's not what saves any of us, right? Furthermore, theologically speaking, it's not just that uh, right living or orthopraxy uh, didn't save us. Uh, It's also something that we have proven time and time and time again, we're not capable of doing it. We couldn't pull it off. If our right living is what it took to get into the good graces of God or be redeemed, we would never get there. So, to be saved, we depend on and accept the life of another, the living of another. This is Jesus. That is, we accept or lean into the orthopraxy of Christ, the perfect life that He has lived. We cling to that. And as we cling to that by faith, that is called orthodoxy. We depend on, we rely on, we believe in what he has done. We believe that he has paid the debt for our sin. We believe that we are adopted into the family of God because of what he does. That act of believing is what happens when we get saved. And even that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we're using some technical language, um, But what really means orthodoxy, right belief, comes before orthopraxy, right living. You will believe in the right thing before you will ever do the right thing. Ephesians said God made it this way on purpose so you and I couldn't brag or boast. If we did the right thing and then we are saved, we could tend to walk around with a swagger and be like, well, you know, I mean, look, look how I lived. And Of of course, God loves me or redeems me. But Ephesians says, no, no, no. It is the righteousness of another, the orthopraxy of another that you lean into and accept so that you can boast in Christ and the cross alone and not in uh, what you've done and in yourself. But here's the kicker, or here's where things start to get confusing. Though we don't get saved by right living, we are saved to right living. Right? We can be freed and empowered to live like Christ or, or the right way after we have been redeemed. Another way to say it is we aren't saved by orthopraxy, but we're saved to orthopraxy. God, through Jesus, frees us from the penalty of our sin, makes us brand new so that we can be people in right standing before God who live rightly next to God in relationship with him, and in relationship to our community, which is the body of Christ. So the second half of the book is Paul showing us uh, what right living meant. This is really a, a, a teaching class of Orthopraxy 101. What does it look like to live rightly in the new identity that has been given to you? So this means that in the second half of the book, there's going to be several things that Paul will flat out say, you cannot do that anymore. This is not what right living looks like. Uh, You cannot be that way. This is not who you are. This is not your identity. It's going to mess things up. It's going to affect your heart. And Paul will say them in ways that aren't like, hey, these are recommendations. They'll be flat out commands. You can't do this or this or this anymore now that you're in Christ. You may ask as we see some of these commands, especially kind of a line of them today. Well, what exactly is the penalty for breaking the commands? Right? That is what my two boys ask. Whenever you say, hey, don't do this, their immediate question is, or else what? Right? Because they want to weigh, hey, what is the cost to benefit ratio of doing that versus the, the penalty that I'm going to, to get? What is the gravity or the seriousness of, of, of avoiding that command? We may ask that about what Paul is saying. Will uh, not obeying Paul, will that cause you to lose your salvation? No, the text says that we are sealed. It said that earlier in the book of Ephesians and it says that again uh, today. The only orthopraxy or right living again that saves us is Jesus's. So when we kind of fall out of that, it doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but living wrongly or misbehavior or ignoring these commands, it will not destroy the gospel in your life, but it will distort it. It will have effects on you. It will change your heart's view in the moment or your experience of faith. In other words, the best way that I can kind of try and say this is when you live outside of the way that you're led to in light of the gospel, it will not steal your salvation, but it will take from you in the moment your joy, uh, your, your excitedness, your experience of like kind of the, the newness or the freshness of your salvation. That will definitely be affected when you ignore what we're going to hear in this part of the book. Really, that's why in the the text last week, Paul says, in light of this, because what you do matters, intentionally look at your life, make sure you're putting off the old self, which is your old identity, the things that you used to do, and put on your new identity, which is in Christ. And you do this by renewing yourself in truth. This week, it's gonna focus on how we must put off our old ways of living and our old ways of life in relation to how we do community in relation to how we uh, kind of live around other people, in relation to how we treat other believers, uh, in relation to how we walk next to the other people around us, the undertone here is the gospel changes the way that we do community life. It changes the way you treat people, what you do around them, how you act towards them, the grace and mercy you give to them. The gospel will infiltrate into community life. And if it doesn't, there's a massive problem. So Ephesians chapter four, verses 25 through 32 is where we're going to be at today. And it says this, we'll jump right into it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you So we'll dive right into this. Paul kind of gives a list of of, of do's and, and don'ts. Many of them or most of them are actually don'ts pertaining to community life. And the very first one Paul jumps into, there's four in a row, has to do with putting away lying. Putting it away. He says it this way, put away falsehood. Put it completely away. Each and every one of you put away falsehood and speak truth to your neighbor. Why? Because we're members of one another. We're members of the body of Christ. We're united on a service level. When someone says something like this, we can kind of tend to hear, okay, don't lie. Cool. Got it. Done. Right? We think, well, that's kind of a junior varsity kind of beginning look on an obvious thing on how we are to, to live, but to put away all falsehood, and to engage in speaking truth, that is a very nuanced and overarching and, and, and a massive approach to truth and reality in general. And Paul's saying, make sure you lean into that. This means so many things for how we conduct ourselves. It means, hey, uh, be careful about your need to exaggerate things around other people. That, that, is, that is not putting away falsehood. Don't allow yourself to speak or portray false realities to others around you either, including the way that you kind of tend to paint a picture for other people that, that in that picture, you're maybe a little bit better or a little bit more polished, or maybe you've accomplished more or, or, or you did more, or you just kind of look better in light of the, of the picture that you have been painting in front of them. This command from Paul We have to see it's bigger than just, hey, don't tell massive whopper lies. It's bigger than that. It leads into painting and projecting a proper perspective of reality to the people around us. Project what is real, not what you would like to be real. Not what you would like to be seen as. Project what is true. No propping yourself up by stretching the facts of what you've accomplished. And no minimizing the full extent of of, of where you struggle or, or kind of tend to have some some issues. See, we don't add to reality things that aren't there. And we don't take away from reality things that are there, no matter how appealing it may be, no matter how socially acceptable it may be, no, no matter how, how, how much it would kind of make us look better or no matter how much we think, well, it's just harmless. We don't add things that aren't real and we don't take away things that are real. Put away falsehood. Stop projecting and painting pictures of reality that do not exist. Paul gives us the why, Uh, in a way that kind of deserves to be processed further together we do it because we're members of one another we are believers we are connected as the body the front half of chapter four of Ephesians talked about this extensively you're members of other people so essentially when you lie or engage in falsehood it hurts and affects the people around you by painting a false representation of reality for them or withholding information that that may benefit them, or may be helpful for them to know. And if you've ever been around someone who lies, like you, you know what it's like. It erodes trust. It, it takes peace it it takes confidence away from the relationship when you know someone doesn't tell the truth all the time and you begin to have to engage with someone going i wonder if this is real or if this is another one of their things or if this is just the way so and so exaggerates and you begin to not have this healthiness in the way you relate to people so paul says put away falsehood do not erode at the foundation of how you relate to other people by changing what is real in the culture that they lived in, not much different than ours, lying had become almost automatic, expected, and, and kind of universal. Hey, everyone does it. It was an accepted way to get what you want and also an acceptable way to not get in trouble or, or be held responsible for things that you don't want to be. And Paul says, hey guys, I understand that everyone else did that, but that is not how the kingdom of God operates. That's not what you were invited into. And this is also the hard part we have to understand. Jesus did not spill his blood to let us hold on to and keep a culture of lies. He he, he didn't do that. Further, to lie, hear me, because this part is maybe difficult for some of us to hear, to lie is to line up ourselves and identify with the father of lies, Satan. Satan let that sink in. When you lie, you're aligning yourself up with and identifying with the father of lies, Satan. While you may consider that, well, that's an exaggeration or that's maybe not needed. While you may think that, it, it definitely is not an exaggeration. We believers are called out of the darkness, called out of our sin, called out of our flesh and into the glorious light of God's grace. That most definitely involves the way that we speak to each other and how we refuse to sow falsehood. This ranges from so many things, right? Our our little white lies have to be put away. Uh, Fibbing on our taxes, exaggerating a bit on, on, on how we let that person have it or how much we got done or anything like that, or even pretending... In conversation, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you talk to someone and you pretend, oh, I didn't know that. That's a lie. That that is putting on falsehood. And Paul is calling us out of this. All of this, putting on falsehood and not speaking the truth is aligning ourselves with a Father who is not ours. Not our Father in heaven. A move that the Holy Spirit is urging us not to make. Continue, the Holy Spirit says, see Jesus. Align with Jesus and lies stop us from doing that. Then Paul moves directly into the topic of anger. Right? You're going to see four just large bucket kind of issues here one after another after another. And Paul says it's okay to get angry at times. Anger in and of itself is not a sin, but we have to give our anger limits and boundaries, and time frames. We have to deal with our anger appropriately and quickly. Paul says it this way. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it just fester and keep going and going and going. Because when you do, you give the devil an opportunity to mess with you. In biblical language, you give your heart a foothold where he has standing inside of it there. This one is appropriate for our current cultural moment, friends, just as it was theirs. in our day, whoever gets the most outrage seems to kind of get their way the most. right? We see this unbridled anger, even if it's not demonstrated in 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 violence or hurting someone, is considered an attribute or a strength or something highly regarded. That's why it's said that we live in an outrage culture. We love to rage because rage and anger makes things happen, gets us attention, and makes us feel powerful and strong. See, we love to get angry. But even more than just to get angry and visible demonstrations of anger, we love to hold on to our anger. All of us are susceptible to this, to feed our anger. Right? You, you ever sat there and, and played a conversation over and over and no, over and you're trying to get more heated each time you do it? We love to nurture our anger, to foster our anger, to blog about our anger. But we do it to an extent to where bitterness and wrath are born out of our hearts because we stew and nurture the anger that we have. See, we live in a world that we are tempted to let rage go unbridle it throw yourself into it and Paul speaks into this by saying you have not you cannot get caught up in this cycle anger is justifiable when you see people getting hurt or taken advantage of and it's even an understandable immediate reaction when you're sinned against but make sure do not let it go Deal with your anger in ways that squash it, that don't nourish it, that don't let it run its full course, or the devil will do his work in your heart and in your community. Again, when asked, well, why? Why is he talking about anger? Why do we need to pay attention to it? Well, the same applies before, because we're members of the same body, when you allow anger to fester and grow towards the people around you, it will destroy your ability to look, out, look at them in a healthy way and to love them because you're too busy pointing your anger at them. You'll stop seeing other people as sons and daughters of God. You'll stop seeing the Imago day in them. You'll stop seeing what they bring to the table and their benefits and the way that they're helpful and their giftedness and their good traits all because you'll marinate on your, your, your anger towards them that normally highlights a weakness that you think they have. And bitterness will be a poison that takes root in your heart when this happens. So deal with your anger by learning to put it away in healthy ways. We have to understand anger isn't just when people snap and scream though. Right? Cuz you may hear this, don't get angry. You're like, man, I haven't freaked out at anybody, so I'm, I'm good there. Well, some of us are really good at passive aggression. Can I tell you that's still anger? Uh, just cuz you don't quote unquote snap, right? Your, your 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 uh kind of a quick biting comment that wasn't yelled, that that's still angry. Your kind of cold shoulder, your kind of a, a aggressive way of saying something, even though it's not loud and you don't have a red face, that's still anger. Some of us really, really are good at holding on to frustration and, and irritation. That's just harbored anger. right? We have to understand because you don't lash out doesn't necessarily mean you're not angry. It just may mean you're too chicken to let your anger go at the person you have it towards. We can be angry without flipping out, and but we have to learn to deal with that. Again, if you suffer in silence with anger, it doesn't mean that you're not angry. It just means that the anger is demonstrated in your heart instead of out in the physical world around you. We have to get this. The Holy Spirit would lead us to let it go. Deal with the root cause of your anger so that you can walk in peace and joy And so that you can love your neighbor. Anger held towards your neighbor will never let you love them. A decision to harbor anger is another decision. This is going to be repeated as well. It's another decision to align with Satan. The one who wants to destroy. The one who wants to to, to pull us into our pride to justify our anger. It's aligning with him when we won't deal with our anger. But the gospel beckons us to lay it down to lay down our anger and to love the people around us well. A decision that all of us are going to have to make. Will we lay down anger or will we foster it? Will we continue to point it at people or will we ask the spirit to help us deal with it? I've had in my own life times where anger has got out of control and I've had to fall to my knees and say, God, help me, I can't deal with this and it's doing something in my heart. We all will have decisions. Will we just not worry about it? Or will we ask God to help us with our anger? The third is this, stealing. Don't steal. In their time, it wasn't uncommon for a person to get what they needed by taking it, right? To have a profession based on commandeering other people's possessions, right? You you couldn't just go to to LinkedIn and shop your resume to to 20,000 people immediately online back then. So some people would literally just take things. I need food. I take it. I like that animal. Take it, right? They, they take whatever they wanted. And Paul says, okay, you're gonna have to stop it. If you're a thief, you need to go and you need to work. You need to earn an honest wage and an honest living like the people around you so that you're going to have enough to meet your own needs. And so you could actually help someone else when they have a need. You might think, well, why would he have to say that? Well, Back then, if there were multiple people who who didn't have enough to get by, and so they just kind of took things in order to to get by, they kind of made a career or a regular part of their life stealing. Then all of a sudden, grace hits them and they become saved. Well, they don't have a job to go feed themselves afterwards. It would be easy for them to kind of just, well, I'm saved and lean back into taking what they want. Paul goes, no, you can't do that. You're still welcomed here. You're still loved by God, but you're going to need to go get a job. Uh, you, You can't take from other people. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to supply your own needs. Stealing is a blatant disregard for others. And Paul says there's no room for it in the kingdom of God. Stealing is another way, again, of aligning ourselves with Satan instead of God the Father. Because theft does this. It declares, I am greater and I deserve more than I have. And I don't trust God to fulfill me. So I will take what I need. This is the calling card of Satan. This is what he does. His entire work is based upon that. I deserve more, so I'll go get it for myself. Paul says, don't align with that. Then the fourth and last out of this run of very specific commands that Paul gives us is the one that is probably uh, the most difficult and dangerous for for all of us. It's a hard one because uh, there's no one who is not susceptible to it. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Uh, We can pass by these words so quickly, we miss the kind of seriousness of the way that Paul says them. He does not say, hey, watch out for, uh, or or, hey, try not to use corrupting talk. He says it pretty strongly. Don't you dare let it come out of your mouth. If someone points you and and says, hey, don't you dare let that come out of your mouth. "Whoa, they're serious. Paul is very serious about this. This phrase corrupting talk has been translated many ways over time. Some have taken it just to mean like don't tell any dirty uh, jokes or, or say words that, that, that are curse words that start with F. Some people say that, but th- that's not really the full picture of what Paul means here. Paul is saying do not use your words in a way that tears things down. Be careful to use words to edify and build up and bring life, not destroy, tear down, cause anxiety, worry, hurt, or pain. Your words and mine have power to bring life or to hurt. Paul says, point your words the right way. Our words are weapons. We know that and we've used them like that. We're familiar with how to to do that. Some of us are kind of like Jedi masters with our words where we use them like a little covert dagger and we and we kind of slyly use them to hurt and tear down other people and wield them in a way that causes massive damage. And at other times, we use our words like wrecking balls. We're not covert. Uh, we're not discreet. We just come in and we destroy everything in our path. Either way, we're familiar with what it's like to tear things down with our words. But we've also used our words intentionally to do the opposite, to help and soothe someone, uh, to, to bring them hope, to help a friend through a hard time, to encourage someone, to advise someone, to call out a goodness out of someone's life. We have seen the power of words to destroy or create good. And Paul says, In Christ, To live in the identity you have been given, you have to use your words to bring life and not death. This takes a lot of focus on what you say. It takes a lot of intentionality to ask, should I say that? Should I leave that alone? Again, to use language as a tool to tear down and not build up is all over again aligning yourself with Satan. Aligning yourself with the one who is not your father. Remember that Jesus told us that we are to be a light into the darkness, the light of the world. Which means that we're meant to shine light and redemption and Jesus into the world around us. And that means when people see you and how you act, they're meant to see the character of Jesus through that by showing off the transformation that he's done in our lives and what he is really like. But when we use our words to bring death and destroy things, we are not showing the character of Jesus. We're portraying and aligning with the enemy. We're rejecting the Holy Spirit's leading when we do this. We are rejecting the character of Jesus. We're rejecting the desire and the commands of Jesus. And we're denying God's goodness over us. This means that we are rejecting the new identity that we have been given. And when we use our words to tear down, we're picking up our old identity of flesh, going, This seems more fun right now. I would rather do this. It's a misalignment of who we are and who we have become. Now, notice the entirety of what Paul has said so far don't lie, do not let your anger go. Don't steal. Don't use your words to destroy. And then he pivots right into seamlessly and don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you. We generally struggle with our theology of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can maybe understand or grasp in an easier way the understanding of God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father, God. That's a little bit easier. But the Holy Spirit, that one just seems to be confusing, Right? There's a whole book called The Forgotten God by Francis Chan because of how, how easy it is for us to get confused about the Spirit's work and its job and its power in our lives. But Paul wants us to know here that there is a third member of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And it is one that relates to us in a very personal way. God the Spirit relates to us in such a personal way if we are believers that in fact Paul says that we can grieve him we can cause the very spirit of God pain by the way we live, by the identity that we put on in the moment or the way that we relate to him. In order to process this statement from Paul, we need to kind of look at the Holy Spirit's role, right? In large terms, like we can't dig into the depths of it, but the Holy Spirit is the one that shows you the Son, that gives you faith, that teaches you how to live, and then empowers you to live in the new identity that you have been given. That's why the Bible calls the Holy Spirit our counselor, counsels, advises, walks next to us because the Holy Spirit is actively and intimately involved in guiding our steps, in helping us know what to do and how to live. So the Spirit aligns our heart with Christ so that we may grow in what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Just in, in the easiest way I can say it, when we let the Holy Spirit of God guide us, show us Jesus, transform the way that we walk and what we do, there is a benefit that comes out of it. There is going to be this harvest of fruit called the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy. And peace, and forbearance, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self control, which means you don't muster all of those things on your own. When you actually uh, let the Spirit guide you, those things are produced inside of you in a beautiful way that you could not produce them on your own. Paul's point in the text is that when we lie, when we let our anger go, when we steal or we use our words to destroy, we are rejecting the Holy Spirit's uh, guide in our lives and we're rejecting the Holy Spirit's call to align ourselves with Christ and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. you you know what? Leave me alone right now. I'll do whatever I want. I don't care who you say I am right now. I'm going to do that instead. When the Holy Spirit is pointing us at Jesus, we go, leave me alone. I would rather align myself with the enemy right now. Again, we might think, well, I don't like that. And that's heavy language. Or maybe that's overkill. It's not. It's not. This is the identities thing. When we put off the new identity that we have been given, we say, I don't want to align with God or Christ in this moment. It looks better to me to turn and walk in the way that I used to and align myself with the enemy. It seems better. I trust that way more. It seems more gratifying. The problem with this is it steals your joy. It steals the newness, the freshness, right? To understand we were dead in our sins and God has made us alive in Christ through the Spirit. And the Spirit walks with us and guides us. That is an amazing thing. But when we continue to reject the Spirit's uh, leading, it begins to wear out the goodness and the newness of our faith. It, it, it kind of takes the, the, the appeal and the shininess away from us at a time. Remember in the garden in Genesis, the serpent Satan tempted Adam and Eve. But he tempted them with more than just an apple. What he was tempting them to do is, is he was tempting them on who they would align with. Right? Instead of trusting and, and finding meaning and a connection with alignment with the Godhead, they were being tempted to align with the enemy, to, to go do your own thing. And when we continue to fall into these sins now, we grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is trying to align us with Jesus and let us walk in freedom. And we're we're pushing that away to instead align with the enemy instead. Now the text says the Holy Spirit can be grieved by what we do, but we are sealed. Which means though the Holy Spirit is grieved, we're not kicked out or disowned from the family of God when we decide to align ourselves outside of God. Praise God that the Trinity does not discard and write people off like we do. God is patient, slow to anger, constantly inviting us back into relationship to put back uh, on the new identity that we have been given in Jesus the end of the text ends up reading kind of like a recap of Paul's main idea. When it says, okay, put off these things, right? He, he'd given us specific things. Don't lie. Don't get, let your anger go. Don't steal. Don't use words. But, but then he's go, hey, more is going to apply to that. Anything that, that brings bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and, and malice, you need to put all that stuff away too. Put that stuff away. Put it away. Put away these things that falsely align your heart with, with ones that are not your Father. And instead, Paul says, instead of aligning yourself with the enemy, he says, be kind, tender hearted, and forgiven. Notice he says, do these things, though, as Christ did them already for you, which is a call to practice aligning with Jesus right? Don't align with the enemy, align with Jesus by modeling the way that he treated you and how you treat other people. This is where Paul makes this list more than just a list of do's and don'ts. And he creates what gospel-centered action in community looks like. See, we practice kindness in the way that we freely received it from Christ. Remembering how Jesus has been patient beyond what we deserve. We've been given way, way, way more chances and he's lavished the greatest kindness that we could have ever seen on us by giving us things that we haven't earned and we don't deserve. Consistently proving to be good and trustworthy, giving us good gifts and an inheritance. He has been kind. So Paul goes, practice the kindness that he has given. Align your heart with him by being kind the way that he has been kind to you. We practice tenderheartedness with people around us just like Jesus does with us as well. It's no secret that we are really, really good at not being good or at falling short, and yet Jesus doesn't pull out the hammer and crush us when that happens. He's patient and persistent, wave after wave after wave of grace and mercy he gives to us. He knew that we would continually fall short, and that's why he gave us an unending supply of grace through his sacrifice. He's given us far beyond what we deserve, and he's far more gentle than we deserve. When we expect him to rage, he is gentle, soft, loving, and kind. Paul says again, align yourself with that Christ. Treat other people in that tender-hearted way the way he has done so for you. And finally, we practice forgiving like Jesus has already done for us. So often what destroys the fabric of community, it's destroyed entire churches, is when we walk in unforgiveness when we say, you know, I know Jesus forgave me, but there's a person around me that I refuse to forgive them, right? What they have done to me, it's too much. It's too great. Their offense is too serious for me to let it go. This is practicing a false gospel pattern out of pride. It says, you know, I deserve forgiveness, but they don't. That makes us kind of judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to forgiveness with other people around. The gospel reality is none of us deserve forgiveness. And yet we get it in Jesus when our faith is in him. If our faith is in him, we get a blessing and of an identity that we did not deserve. But when we withhold forgiveness for others around us, it begins to mute our ability to be refreshed and satisfied in the forgiveness that we have received. Paul's not just saying, well, forgive other people because it's the nice thing to do. He's beginning to say, when you stop forgiving other people, it's going to change your ability to see and feel forgiven by Jesus yourself. And that's going to hurt your heart. For your own heart, hear the Spirit leading you to forgive those who have wronged you like Jesus forgave you. Align with him and find joy again, the joy that unforgiveness normally steals from you. These are Paul's words to to us, church, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God himself. They're more than just a list of do's and don'ts. They're an invitation, though, to lay down the way we're doing things, to, to stop picking up our old identity and align again with a God who has done much, who is gracious and kind and merciful, who sent his Son and the Spirit to save and redeem us. I wonder in this list of, of putting away falsehood and and anger and And even stealing and and using words to tear down. I wonder if in in any of those, the Spirit has begun to just kind of gently press on you and you realize that, man, there's some some ways that you're putting on your old identity there instead of walking in the new. Because that's kind of how the Spirit works, by pressing in gentle conviction, going, hey, you're doing that and it's hurting your heart. And I want to walk you out of that to align back to the Jesus who is good. If that is happening for you this morning, man, I pray that you understand that conviction isn't a bad thing. It's meant to walk us away from what will hurt us and walk us into the fullness of what has been done. The Holy Spirit may be right now saying, hey, you need to forgive that person. The person that you're so frustrated with that you don't see any good in anymore. That all you see is the, the negative, that they're, they're, they're even their they're name being said by someone that causes ire in you. The Holy Spirit may be directing you. You need to forgive them and experience the forgiveness of Jesus in a fresh way over you. The Holy Spirit may be asking you to, to confess to someone today the fact that your, your lies have kind of got out of control. You slowly begin blurring the lines and exaggerating. And and all of a sudden, maybe the Holy Spirit is showing that you have engaged in falsehood. And the Spirit wants to walk you into the light of His truth. Again, if that's happening, would you hear that? And maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you have gotten really good at making people feel bad. Tearing them down. Of, of, of making them feel less than a son or daughter of God, that you 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 call yourself a cynic, but it's just really that you have become a career person who uses their words to, to rip things down to the ground to feel better. If that's you, the Holy Spirit may be saying, hey, I want to walk you out of that. Jesus paid his blood so that you could be free from that and not enslaved in that. If any of those land on you, today would you hear the spirit leading you out of that walking you not just to be moral but into fullness of your faith for so many of us when we entertain these patterns that are rejecting the spirit's guidance in our life it's what just makes our faith just feel kind of old and and stale and you may be surprised when you listen to the spirit again and let him actually lead you humble yourself to let him lead you you may be surprised that the beauty and the freshness and the newness of your faith may become big and wonderful to you again. And I hope that you would hear the Spirit in that. We have a beautiful Savior who's done much. He has not just saved us uh, from our sin so that we can get off scot-free from our sin. He has saved us, but then he walks us over and over and over into the fullness of our new identity in his kingdom. And in relationship with him. The beauty of this message is even though if you fall short and the Spirit is guiding you out of something, you're still sealed. He can convict you without crushing you and walk you out into newness of your faith. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work through this. We all fall short. We, we all get into habits and patterns where we reject your spirit and we do our own thing. And that process can get so out of control and so quick that we, we don't know how to stop. So in this moment, as, as we hear these words, spirit, I pray that you would pull us towards Jesus, that you would align us again, that you would convict us of the areas where we're living out an identity that it is not our own. And may you may walk in the fullness of what you've done. Spirit, do your work? We need you. We confess that we have lived uh, many, many, many of our days rejecting your power and your influence and our need for you to guide us. So come close again. Forgive us for grieving you. We need you to lead us again. We need you to show us Christ instead of the million things out there that our hearts will tend to look at alone. Come, do your work. Help us to forgive. Use our words rightly to be men and women of of truth who work for what we have and follow you and align with you. We pray that in your name, God. Amen. Friends, I pray that this text is helpful to you, that the Spirit speaks to you in this. We'll have a worship guide, just like the other weeks with some songs and prayers. Uh, I would invite you to engage in that. Here's the reality of what's happening. We're, We're going on months of not being together. And that's starting to have an effect on our heart. Uh, For for many of you, I've sensed this in my own self, just the the terrain of my heart is, 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 it's just harder ground than it was before. And I think a lot of that is because we're not worshiping together. We're not taking communion together. And the, the, the corporate strength that we have by engaging in truth and worship and the sacraments together, we're missing out on that right now. So when we create these worship guides and other things for you, they're to help you fight in a time when your heart just may need you to be a little bit more intentional than you have been. So I, didn't, I, I just ask you, will you engage with that? Will you spend some moments in, in prayer? If, if singing's not your thing, just even when some of those are on, would you just use that time to have that in the background and pray and ask the Spirit to speak and guide you? and eagerly anticipate the time that we can be back together. I love you guys. I can't wait till we can be back in the same spot worshiping, even when some of our missional communities can get together and just be able to speak truth and realize the blessing that it is to have other people in community with us. Uh, I love you guys. I hope to see you again before too long. Bye.